Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Netflix's Brandon Reig about the streamer's search for shiny floor formats, game shows and growing focus on sports. AMC Network's Kristen Dolan on figuring out effective content monetization models for the era of streaming and Universal International Studios' Beatrice Springborn and Roma Carter on emerging from the US writers' and actors' strikes and their roadmap for 2024. Netflix Vice President of Unscripted and Documentary Series Brandon Rieg joined the streamer in 2016 to help steer the company's push into original unscripted content, having previously overseen such activities at NBC and ABC. After working on shows including The Voice, America's Got Talent, Dancing with the Stars and Wife Swap, Rieg and his team went on to develop series at Netflix like Queer Eye, Nailed It, Selling Sunset, Love is Blind, Formula One Drive to Survive and many more. Following this year's success with docuseries Beckham and Squid Game The Challenge, the latter now renewed for a second season, the exec sat down with Emma Bullimore at C21's Content London recently, where he delved into some of these titles, highlighted the company's search for shiny floor formats and game shows, and detailed his growing focus on sports and approach to adapting scripted series for the non-fiction space. We're so lucky to have Brandon with us, and I've got so much to talk to you about, so we're going to try and get as much in as possible. Okay. So you joined in 2016. I remember Making a Murderer was pretty big at that time, but the, the unscripted slate was very different. What, what did you want to do? How did you want to shake things up? It was really about expanding. I think, you know, nonfiction as a genre is, I, I would always say, is sort of like the broadest of all the categories. And so... Uh, Netflix was doing a great job with a lot of the documentary approach, but we wanted to get into more traditional reality and unscripted programming. Um, seven years ago sounds like a long time, but it's kind of flown by in a blink of an eye. And we're still, I think, getting into new spaces, but we've managed to really diversify the portfolio. You know, it's everything from chef's table to is it cake and everything in between. Uh, so we're feeling good about where we're heading, uh, but plenty more to do. And so many things have taken off. I mean, was this the plan? Have you surprised yourself how, how, it's, how huge it's all got? Um, it, you know, I, I always had faith coming from a background working in reality for so long. Um, so I had faith that it would work. I think the big question that we had or that I had coming in is what are the sorts of unscripted shows, what are the sorts of nonfiction formats that the Netflix members are going to really respond to? And uh, there was a bit of trial and error, but I think we were fortunate in coming out of the gate, really, we had some really big successes, whether it's Queer Eye or Nailed It or Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. And it gave us a little bit more conviction in terms of the path we were on and, and I think gave us some learnings in terms of um, what we wanted to develop that we knew our members were responding to. And how big a team do you have to work with? Uh, it's fairly large. Uh, you know, for the English-speaking teams, we have a really big office here in London with the Doc Series, Doc Film, Unscripted and Sports. And then similarly in the US, we have a few more executives, but it's those three categories of documentary, unscripted and sport. Uh, and then in all the major markets that Netflix is in, we have a dedicated nonfiction executive. So Spain, Italy, France, um, there's a really talented team of creatives there that, that uh, curate the programming we do. And because unscripted is a very big word, and, and for you that means three very separate yeah. areas. So to talk us through that and your strategy. Um, it really it came about in terms of what we saw was working so well. So documentary, um, which was sort of the earliest established part of the team, uh, making a Murderer and, and through Tiger King and um, Deepest Breath and things like that that we've had this year. Unscripted really 
I think is a nicer way of saying reality, but encompassing everything from the big formats like uh, Strictly down to, like I said, some of the smaller game shows that we've done. Uh, and then sport was really something we formalized this year off the back of such momentum from Last Chance You, The Last Dance, obviously Drive to Survive was a big uh, proponent uh, or catalyst in that respect. And it felt like we knew we were getting into a category that was a huge amount of demand. And so we just sort of formalized having that as a separate standalone team within the broader nonfiction group. And across all of that, are there things that always work for you? Is it about understanding your audience? Are there certain things you're looking for? Uh, yeah, I think two things. We, you know, a lot of what we strive to do is innovate. And I think we've been super fortunate that the producing community has really stepped up to that challenge. And we say, you know, we want a fresh take on the familiar. And there are categories that you know are evergreen. Dating is one of them, food is one of them. Um, and we really encourage the producers to think outside the box, to come to us with ideas that maybe felt less conventional or at least had a different twist. And so that sort of push towards evolving the genre and taking risks is a big part of the DNA. I think the other thing that happened early on that, that was notable is we saw, obviously outside of the crime documentaries, things that were more positive and aspirational and inspirational in nature is really what a lot of the members were responding to. And so we've leaned into that um, as much as we can and we've seen that sort of consistently return everywhere in the world, not just in the UK and the US, but really people wanting to feel good about what they've seen or feel uh, inspired rather than doing the sort of lowest common denominator approach. Um, so that served us well and we'll continue to expand on that into the other categories. Let's talk about sport because traditionally from an outside perspective, perhaps we didn't associate Netflix with sport. I know Prime Video has gone very heavy, rights to games, rights to slams, that kind of thing. Did you always know that that was something that the Netflix audience would go for? We didn't know definitively. I mean, I, I think sports is sort of an incredible storytelling engine. I always say it's the, it's, it's the biggest soap opera that exists. Right? You never really know what you're going to get. I'm a massive sports fan myself. And so I think part of it was just understanding the passion that, that fans of a sport or an athlete have and figuring out ways that we could capture that fandom um, and while we're not in the live sports rights business, I think we've done a terrific job of creating shows and, and coming up with franchises that really feed that appetite and also give fans and even non-fans alike a different glimpse into the worlds and the characters that inhabit them. Um, it's been, I think it's probably exceeded what we anticipated. I mean, truthfully, when we did Drive to Survive, I wasn't an F1 fan, um, but I really respected the sport. It's huge globally. We came in with Box to Box and said, how are, we, how are we going to tell these stories in an interesting way, knowing that the season is months uh, in the rearview mirror, like it's, it's ended months previous? And I think they did a terrific job of really going in character first. Um, and, and it grew, I think, the fandom of the sport, certainly in the US, but even around the world, because it didn't just cater to the existing F1 fans. You know, my wife started watching it. I had friends that would say all the time, like, oh, my kids who never followed it are really into it. And so that was, that was really rewarding and also encouraging that we had found a way to get into sport without needing the live sports rights. But you also need that access, right, to, to make these come alive. You know, how do you gain that trust and get that behind the scenes access on a, you know, a big sport with a yeah. lot of rich companies? No, who, you know. it's a great question. I think, look, the, the leagues have curated an incredible product and, and they've had control over every element of that. And so to partner with, uh, you know, a a streaming service like Netflix, knowing that we retain Final Cut, that we're going to have obviously creative input, was a bit of a leap of faith. And I think 
you know, kudos to F1 for taking that leap with us. And uh, in doing so, they reaped really, I think, the benefit of a really successful show, but it also set the template for many of the other leagues that we've worked with. And we've seen that sort of positive cycle where they trust us to tell the stories. You know, we're always gonna be honest, but we're certainly not looking to have a gotcha moment. Um, and we've seen that whether it's Tour de France, which has done incredibly well in Europe. We have our Six Nations Rugby Series coming out shortly. Uh, we've done series with the NFL and the, and the PGA. And all of it, again, they've all agreed, because I think they see from other leagues that have worked with us, and they see the positive outcome in terms of a show when it really works on Netflix, what it can do for the sport and some of the athletes within it. Is live sport something you're interested in or not? Um, it's, you know, I, we get that question a lot. We've been really consistent. You know, Ted Sarandos, our, our CEO, has said, we're not anti-sport, we're, we're pro-profit. So it's just not aligned with sort of our strategy and business model, and that's fine. I think there are some terrific platforms that get those live rights, and we're just looking to, again, tap into that fandom with our narrative programming. But tell me about Netflix Cup. Oh, yeah. Um, so that was our first foray into what I'd say are live sports entertainment. And for those that aren't familiar, we, we put on a golf tournament a couple weeks ago uh, leading into the uh, F1 Las Vegas Grand Prix, and it featured drivers from Drive Survive and golfers from our Full Swing series partnering up and competing over nine holes. It was, it was a blast. I think it's a sort of fun exhibition event that uh, fans of the sport enjoyed, fans of both of the shows enjoyed. I said it was a little bit like the Jetsons and Flintstones sort of crossover, um, but we were really happy with it. The, the players were thrilled. They, they had a really great time. And so we'll look to do more of that moving forward. But I think, you know, as we grow the ecosystem, any of those shows that can really pull talent from different uh, series together is a treat for the fans and members alike. Uh, on the, the unscripted side, we have Perfect Match, which similarly pulled some of our favorite characters from other dating shows. And, and that crossover element is yeah. something we're going to see more of, right? Uh, yeah, 100%. I think it just, it takes us a beat to sort of get these established shows and franchises up and running and then pulling from them from our most uh, popular or, or beloved uh, talent on those shows. Let's talk about Beckham, because... Let's talk about <laughs> That documentary has been absolutely huge for sports fans, fans of the Spice Girls, everyone in between. How did you go about convincing David and Victoria to be part of that, and when did you decide that was something you wanted to do? Uh, it started, actually, at this point, I think it was four or five years ago. The head of documentaries for Netflix, Adam Del Deo, uh, met David at a dinner and we knew, again, we knew we wanted to get into sport more. We, we were looking to sort of uh, be in business with sort of these I global icons, of which David certainly is one. And so, you know, Adam introduced himself and really pitched David on the idea. And he, I think, it's really about timing. I think he was at a point in his life and his career where he saw, I think, the, the value in it and, and perhaps the benefit of of doing it, but he still, you know, put a lot of thought into it. And if you get to know David, he's an incredibly thoughtful, genuine person. And so um, we really kept the conversation going with him and Nicola Housen, who works uh, with him. And they finally sort of came around and said, you know what, we'd be open to this. And we put really a fantastic team together around it with Fisher Stevens and John Patsick. Um, and then really it was on David and Victoria to do their part, which was be candid, be open, um, be authentic. And they did, and what you see uh, that came from that was something we're incredibly proud of and that, you know, I think was a f global phenomenon. Where is the line between gaining his trust 
but not giving away full editorial control. And did you give away editorial control? Uh, yeah, we did not give away full editorial. We, we retained Final Cut, no different than any of the sports leagues. And look, we talked to all of the talent and partners. We want them to feel invested and as a stakeholder, but also understand that our job and the producer's job is to tell the best version of that story and to encompass and cover whatever they think um, is meaningful. It's, it's really, I think, no different than any relationship. You build trust over time. Um, I think he was aware, obviously, of you know, what Fisher was thinking, and, and he obviously participated in some of those interviews, but he didn't actually watch the series at all until after it had premiered on Netflix. I don't think he or Victoria had seen any of it. So they came in, I think, as fans and also you know, waiting to see what had been put together, but they were really pleased with how it turned out. And once something like that has been so huge, what's the kind of debrief process? Do you all gather and say, what can we do to follow this? Or, yeah, how does it work? I think it's, it's a validating proof point in terms of getting into this sort of that sport and pop culture space further. Um, obviously, you know, there are not many people of David's stature, but we always look to find people that are both willing and have this sort of rich story to tell. Uh, it reaffirmed that. I think, you know, we're going to continue looking for those opportunities. I think the one thing that the Beckham series did for us, it certainly gave um, a reference point for other celebrities or talent that might be thinking or, or somewhat open to it, that they can see both how we approached it and, and, and how it performed. Um, and again, it's all to the positive, and I think one door opens and leads to a few other doors that hopefully will open as well. It made my friends want a Victoria documentary as well. Oh, okay. I just yes. put that yeah. <laughs> um, Talk to me about how documentaries have evolved because Making Murderer was so huge, but it, I feel like it, it wouldn't necessarily be made now in that way. You know, things have changed into things like Tinder Swindler. There's, there's a rich diversity of documentaries on Netflix. Tell me how that's happened on your watch. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, Making a Murder was, it is a phenomenal series, and I think what it did, it sort of established Netflix as a home for these premium documentaries. I think it also showed that we were approaching the sort of traditional genre in a less traditional way. I think the producers and director did a fantastic job of innovating in terms of how that storytelling works. Obviously, it was told over many, many episodes because it was such a twisty, turny uh, story. But since then, I think, you know, we've gotten a bit sharper in terms of knowing the sort of subject matter that, that works. It's still an incredibly diverse slate, right? You have you know, Tiger King was also sort of a really crazy story. Um, but we've been, you know, clear the crime stuff. I think we have a pretty high bar for what we're looking for. And then from there, it's really been expanding into other categories, pop culture, um, history, uh, natural history. So we've, again, tried to cover all the bases within the doc space, but crime is probably the most potent category within that. And let's talk about dating, because you have all of the full-on addictive <laughs> dating shows. Love is blind, too hot to handle. Was that always part of your plan? Uh, yes and no. I, you know, dating is obviously a really evergreen category. And, and you know, here in the UK, obviously, you have you something brilliant in Love Island. Um, so we knew that there's an appetite out there. You know, frankly, in the US, it was really The Bachelor and, and that universe that was dominating a lot of the conversation within the dating space. We had tried very early on with a show called Dating Round that was a fantastic, almost documentary approach to dating. It, it was beloved. It wasn't a massive show, but it was really well regarded by those that watched it. And it gave us sort of early signals like, okay, we can innovate in that space. We know that there's an, there's an audience there. We just need to really broaden the funnel of the people that are coming in. And we were fortunate, again, the innovation space with Love is Blind and Too Hot to Handle that they both came out in the same year. And I think, again, it was a 
fresh take on the familiar, like we've said. Um, it didn't surprise me that it worked. I think we felt good about the approach and the creative. I think the degree to which those shows have continued to become bigger and bigger, um, and now Perfect Match you know, is in that stable as well, um, has been encouraging. We're gonna st still look for more of those, but yeah, I would say that you know, those three are three of the biggest, if not the biggest dating shows globally right now. And they are shows that viewers are obsessed with, but shows that critics are often a bit sniffy about. I mean, <laughs> does that bother you? Do you care? You know. No, I, I mean, look, I think our job is to cater to a very wide array of interests and appetites, and not everybody's always going to feel every show is for them. And that's, I think, whether you're uh, a viewer sitting at the couch at home or you're a critic whose job is to evaluate it, there is a level of subjectivity, and we understand that. I think the, our primary focus is on pleasing our members and bringing joy. Um, to everybody that has a Netflix subscription. So that's gonna require a wide range of shows. And again, Chef's Table to Is It Cake, you know, encompasses something like that. Um, so yeah, the critical stuff is great when it's positive and we are understanding when it's less than positive. And our terrestrial broadcasters in the UK are under a lot of scrutiny for duty of care with these kind of shows, especially Love Island. What kind of processes do you have in place? Yeah, I think it's an important topic. I do think the UK has really been leading the field and leading the charge in that. Um, I think, at, you know, I, I speak for ourselves. We hold ourselves to a high uh, bar. I think we actually look at the UK's duty of care approach and in many ways, I think, go beyond that uh, in certain respects. It is an ever-evolving topic. I think we're always looking for ways to refine or build on what we've done already, but it's uh, certainly something we take incredibly seriously um, and you know, we'll continue to improve on as we go with shows in the future. And is it an area you're continuing to expand in, you, you know, looking at, at new dating formats? Because it's kind of hard to reinvent that, isn't it? It is, but you know, it never ceases to amaze me. I mean, we don't buy every show that, that is pitched to us, but um, it's really been great to see the sort of invigorated producers coming in and, and uh, just thinking really outside the box and understanding that doing a show on Netflix requires sort of, you know, a, a different bespoke approach. Um, we, you know, we look at some of these shows as 10-hour movies, right? So it's been encouraging in that respect. I think the producing community, again, has responded to that challenge well, and the proof is in a lot of the shows that we've had great success with. Um, but yeah, we'll, we, we're always open for business, and uh, we just heard a great dating show pitch a couple weeks ago, so that might end up on service uh, sometime soon, too. And a word about Selling Sunset, because that is a lot of people's favorite. Yeah. I mean, did you always know a show about estate agents could be so gripping? Was it a punt? Um, it, was, it was early days. It was our first approach at a docu-soap. And I think, you know, there had been shows in the U.S. Million Dollar Listing that lived in that world of, of real estate. I think what we loved about this one is it felt so unique in terms of the setup. But it was also leaning into some of the glamorous real estate, I think, in LA, which we, we felt we always had that to fall back on. And we liked the characters at the Oppenheim group. Uh, again, that show took off in a bigger way than we probably could have imagined, but it, I think, felt like we came at it in a different, in a different way. Uh, and that's led to many other ways of selling the OC, we have buying Beverly Hills, and so it's been fertile territory for us, and I uh, would expect to see other shows in that real estate space uh, as well. And you've worked in TV for, for quite some years, and you've also worked on the Got Talent series, on The Voice. Yeah. Are those shiny floor shows, those live entertainment formats, they're so big still. Could you see anything like that on Netflix? 100%. Um, 
you know, I, I've had the good fortune and the privilege of working on a lot of those formats, whether it's Strictly or Got Talent, The Voice. That's still an area that we've not cracked yet, if I'm being totally candid. Um, so again, those are hard shows to do. It's not easy to find ones that are really gonna break out, but we are for sure focusing our efforts on finding a sort of a big shiny floor performance show. When they work to your point, they can sort of run in perpetuity almost. Um, and viewers love it, and you know, I think it's just for us finding that new innovative approach that hopefully viewers will be intrigued enough to give a chance uh, to engage with. But yeah, it's a, it's a big priority for us. And that would be that would be quite a jump, really. You know, to, to call in and vote on a on a Netflix show. But you think there's still mileage in those shows because they've been around for such a long time, but they still seem so popular. Yeah, they are. I think, but you know, I think viewers are are always looking for something that appeals to them. And I think you can have your favorites that you've been watching for years and years, and still have room to to embrace something else that's in that same category. Um, again, it's a it is a very challenging category for a lot of reasons, but. I've seen firsthand the impact that those shows can have. I think, you know, additionally, now that we have live programming capability on, on service, it unlocks the ability for us to do shows that have either live elements, a live finale, viewer interaction like voting, um, which I think eventizes those series in a way that makes it even more exciting for people to, to engage with. It's like feeling that you're part of a community watching and in, interacting with the show is is really empowering. And so if we can find, again, the right vehicle to do that, I'd love to jump on it. Um, and it would be, you know, it would be a first probably to have people in 192 countries voting, uh, you know, on who the best singer is or who the best performer is. So I'm, I'm excited about getting to that point and seeing how that comes out. Let's talk about Squid Game because, yeah. you know, transferring the IP, great idea, but in practice must have taken a lot of work, a lot of meetings. Tell me how it all came about. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously Squid Game, the scripted series, is um, one of the most valued pieces of, of TV IP, I think, that Netflix has, and certainly in, in the history of television. The easier route would have been to just leave it alone and, and for us to not dive into, you know, trying to adapt it. Um, but we're always up for a challenge, and what we said is, if we can find a take that we really love, um, and we can get the blessing of director Huang and work with our Korean counterparts that we'll, we'll do it, and to the credit of Studio Lambert and The Garden, they both came in with really compelling creative briefs um, for the show. And so we sort of took the plunge and moved forward with it. And I'm incredibly proud of, of what they accomplished. I think the show's brilliant. They did a terrific job of bringing that scripted world into real life. Uh, and so far, the response has been phenomenal. We couldn't be any happier. Um, even, especially in the UK, I think, we were talking about this backstage, but. Um, we had majority of Americans in as contestants, but the British contestants, there's a disproportionate number of them that make it very far, which I think is a testament to the approach and the attitude of the Brits. Um, but it really was, yeah, I think it was a total collaborative effort and uh, the result with what you see on service is uh, nothing short of spectacular. Did you just, obviously no one dies, we get that. Yeah. But did you decide that apart from that, you fully had to lean in, you know, from, from them sort of pretending to die, you know, really going for that? Yeah, I mean, I think it was those details that we really had to hash out because if you're going to try to recreate something, you want to do it faithfully and, and, you know, whether it's the tile on the walls of the dormitory or how do you approximate or translate the sort of elimination in, in the script series, obviously it was death. Um, and so we had a lot of discussion around that and I think where we settled in terms of having the squibs for the most part uh, be that mechanism 
felt right. And, you know, there's a level of suspension of disbelief on all shows. I think maybe on this one, because people were so familiar with the scripted show, they, they bought in a bit more easily once you saw the players there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's all those small details that you agonize over and then hope that you've made the right decision. And why did you decide to film it in the UK? Um, a few reasons. I, I think, again, the pool of talent in the UK, especially in Unscripted, uh, is really impressive. We obviously had two production companies that were British uh, and had their key personnel out here. Um, and that, that's really what led it. I mean, again, we, we program globally and locally, um, but we're willing to shoot anywhere. And, and shooting in the UK just in this instance made the most sense. And, it, and it's quite a big partnership, isn't it, for you in terms of production, UK, US? It is, yeah. Um, it, was, it was truly a sort of global effort. Um, it was a, Execs on both offices were across it uh, and, and really you know, came together with, again, Studio Lambert in the Garden to try to make something that felt special. And of course, it's a fantastic privilege to have all of these international viewers, but it must be a bit of a headache as well. I mean, how much do you, just, how do you decide what's hyper-local? What, you know, what's gonna be a series for one territory and, and what is just gonna to appeal to everyone? Yeah, it, it's, there's a level of subjectivity around that. Um, <clears throat> again, we have, this, we have a terrific group of executives here in the London office who are really tasked with programming for local UK tastes as well as global sort of swings. Um, Beckham's probably a good example. We felt from the start, that's a global name, he's, he's a global icon, that feels like a large global swing. Whereas if you look at what the UK's done this year, they had a terrific film with Louis Capaldi. Um, they had a terrific series with Tyson Fury. Those knowing that that talent was more resonant with the UK specifically, the goal was to super serve our UK members and then anything outside of the UK was really additive, you know, icing on the cake. Um, and, and so they've been able to balance that by just making that judgment call at the beginning. I mean, the, the truth is any show be can become a massive global hit for us, but when we start out, we do try to focus on who we think the most obvious audience is and cater to that audience first and foremost. So it's okay you didn't say with Louis Capaldi, oh, but no one in Brazil knows who he is. It's, it's okay to, to do those local projects. Correct, yeah. And I think, you know, again, we have execs in all these different countries and, you know, their primary focus often is like, let's serve the members here, but know that because we have a global service, really this show can catch fire and be embraced all over the world. Um, and so you've seen that with the Neymar doc. I think in Spain, Soy Georgina has been a huge hit for them. But for fans of Ronaldo or just football fans in general, that was a series that they embraced globally. And some things must surprise you that they, they find a bigger audience than you perhaps expect. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, tidying up with Marie Kondo, I think, turned into one of those really pleasant surprises that globally just caught fire. Um, and then, you know, truthfully, Selling Sunset has become a real global phenomenon, even though in the beginning when we commissioned it, it felt very US-centric. And so the thinking was that this should serve that sort of Bravo-type audience within the US. Uh, and then, you know, the pleasant surprise is it really, especially in the UK, became a truly uh, massive hit. And then how do you decide Love is Blind has certain iterations in different countries, but not every country, obviously. You haven't got the resource for that. So how do you decide how you do that? Uh, no, it's a, it's a good question. We, we actually endeavor to have as many versions of these formats as we can, but it ultimately is up to the unscripted executive in each country as to which uh, formats they want to pursue. You know, I think the, the benefit of what we're trying to accomplish uh, in so many of these countries is I equate it to everybody's 
getting a book and they're putting it in the library and then anybody else can check that book out. And so, you know, whether it's Love is Blind out of the US um, or uh, something like Physical 100 out of Korea, the opportunity is there for all of our executives to sort of adapt it locally. And it really, again, comes down to them knowing the market and knowing the members uh, in that market in terms of what they were looking for. Um, question here about travelogues, travel series. Is that something that you're interested in? Uh, yes and no. I think <clears throat> travelogues as a format has resonated uh, in the UK a lot more. We had Jack Whitehall's Travels with My Father, which was, which was a massive hit. And I think you see that type of show succeed in the UK more frequently. In the US, it's not been uh, as potent of a, of a category or a format. So the UK team for sure is open and looking for those things. I'd say less on a global or US scale though. A question about music. Do you look at music documentaries and is that something you're interested in for your unscripted offer? Um, we get that question a lot. I think music is, Music is a tougher category. We, we've seen great success. Again, the Lewis Capaldi one, or Wham! this year was also a, a really big hit. I think you have to be judicious in which ones you go after and, and sort of right size what you think the audience will be. You know, I, I think of it a bit like sport. If you love an artist, you probably love them with such passion, it's hard to envision somebody doesn't love them. Uh, and yet, more often than not, you see the music docs having fairly niche viewership. So, we're certainly open to it, but I think we, we do try to be selective in which ones we go after, um, because I, I don't think it's as prolific of a category as some of the other ones that we've seen. Um, interesting question here about casting. You know, how do you go about casting something like Squid Game with contestants from all around the world? Uh, really, you know, it's the production companies assemble a fantastic casting team, and uh, for Squid Game, we really wanted it to feel international, and so we had casting outreach in basically every region of the world. So the only, the only requirement was that they spoke English because we wanted there to at least be one universal language amongst the contestants. Um, but it, that really comes down to the producers and, and we certainly help, but them understanding who the best casting executives are and, and, and bringing them aboard the show to help bring that vision to life. And we've talked a lot at this conference already about budgets being tight and about you know commissioning crunches and things being difficult. And a question here about you know, whether you found it hard in the current climate. I mean, it sounds like you're optimistic and full of energy and ideas, but has, has it affected you as well? You know, I, we're disciplined and mindful in terms of the budgeting. I think we're also fortunate with Netflix that if, if there's something out there that we think is worth pursuing, we, we sort of have the resources to go after it. Um, we still do, my, my nonfiction group does around 100 titles a year, um, which is down from its peak, but I think we've also become more attuned to what our members are looking for and, and I think probably a bit smarter in what we're commissioning. So we haven't needed to do quite as many titles. I think the 100 split amongst the three groups feels like the right size for each of them, um, which is still a lot. So yes, we haven't really slowed down at all. I think we've just been more specific in terms of what we're looking for. How do you stay so attuned to the taste of your membership when it is so large? <laughs> you know, there's so many people watching Netflix. Yeah, no, it's a good one. It, it, it comes down to that same thing. I think when you work on the creative side, it's part creative instincts, and I think part is just being aware of what's going on in the zeitgeist and pop culture, um, and drawing upon that when you're really evaluating an idea. Again, it, it starts with the creative community and the producers coming in and saying, we think this is an area, or we think this is a world that is 
um, ripe for exploring and that we think people respond to. And, and it's for our team of executives to similarly be as well-informed and educated in terms of what's working around the world. Uh, I mean, you see it a lot with when a new entrant into the category works, there's suddenly a lot of things that follow that. Dating, we certainly saw after Love is Blind and Too Hot to Handle worked, a lot of the other networks and streamers really jumped into back into the dating space. I think similarly with the traders working so well in the UK, you've seen, again, a lot of these social experiment competitions um, coming up. So it's, it's ultimately great for the fan and the viewer, um, but it really is, I think, a collaboration between the producers and the network in terms of understanding what they think is the most resonant for the public at any given time. So when you see a show like Traitors, do you get angry or do you get inspired? <laughs> Why don't we have that? Um, the, well, the competitive part of me goes, I really wish we had that. <laughs> but I think, look, the truth is a rising tide lifts all ships. And I'm genuinely happy when we see another unscripted series or nonfiction series work elsewhere. I think it reinforces the appeal of the genre. I think it's, it's terrific, again, for it just to be in the zeitgeist. I think it helps everybody. So... You know, we have, I think, a friendly, respectful competition amongst all the, the services and networks, but we're genuinely pleased when we see things work, because that's really a win, ultimately, for everybody. And you've gone into natural history as well in recent years, haven't you? That's an expensive kind of program to make, but, you know, they, they really, when they work, they hit so well. You know, why did you decide to do that, and how is that working for you? It, you know, I think, again, seeing seeing the impact of, of series like Planet Earth and knowing that there was an appetite within that category. The, the toughest bit of it, as you point out, there, there's a huge investment, but it's also really, it takes years and years to make these series. And so once you commit to it, you sort of can't change course and you're gonna get uh, whatever it is you set out to, but it will take probably three, four, five years. We, again, have worked with some terrific companies to try to innovate on that side. I think, you know, Life on Our Planet, which came out recently, was really transformative in terms of the use of VFX and CGI and really exploring nature in a different way than we'd seen. Um, but it's a category that, again, we know that there's a lot of interest in and we just have to do our job in terms of coming up with a fresh take on it that hopefully people will respond to. And looking forward to the next year, two years, three years, what are you looking for? What kind of trends do you think are going to be big? Um, I definitely want us to explore on the live front a bit more. Um, you know, I think, again, if we can find our version of some performance show, that would be terrific. I think game show is another category that is incredibly tough, but when they work, uh, can be really consistent, high-performing uh, series. So, so those two are top of mind. Um, but I, I also think we're gonna see more innovation. I think we're gonna see, hopefully, bolder risk-taking amongst all the buyers, because uh, ultimately, that's what moves the genre forward. And so that's what I'm most excited by. I, I do think, with the swell of success that we've seen in nonfiction everywhere, it's just gonna give greater sort of confidence in terms of continuing to build that. Uh, it really feels like a special time for the genre right now, so I'm excited that we get to be part of it. And more sports. Yeah, for sure more sports. I think that is right now the most potent growing category that we have um, within nonfiction. So you'll see a lot more, whether it's athlete profiles, league follows, we have our Untold series, which is an anthology series. Uh, that dives into lesser-known stories uh, within the world of sport. But you'll see more of that on our service, and I think you're seeing it as well elsewhere. You know, Apple's done some terrific ones. They just had the Lionel Messi one. Uh, Amazon's gone into the, the narrative programming in a big way. So if you're a sports fan, it's a great time. Um, and yeah, I'd expect to see a lot more of that in the future. 
And true crime is still there, but the bar is high. That's kind of what you've been Yeah, saying. true crime is there. I think we really do want to have a high bar for it in terms of, of what we're working on. I, I also think expanding you know, into different types of crime uh, is a big area of focus for the team as well. So we'll see what comes of it. And following Squid Game, are you scrutinizing all your other dramas, thinking, where's, where's my next big hit? It, I think the success of, of Squid Game, the challenge, has definitely given greater confidence in saying, could we adapt you know, scripted IP? It, the tricky bit of it is, the scripted show really was about a reality game show type of setup, so it lent itself fairly seamlessly in terms of doing a reality show. So I think as the producers, and, and even internally, we look at the scripted IP out there, we'll be more open to it, but have to realize that I think whatever the next thing is will probably be a little bit tougher of an adaptation than what we had with Squid Game. Well, I can't wait to see what's next. We Thank saw you. You know, how, yeah. how strong it's looking at the moment, and I'm sure there's much more that you can't even tell us about <laughs> that, is, that is in store. But for now, thank you so much for being here and sharing your insights. It's been great to chat to you. Thank, thank you, so, you much. so much for joining us Thanks, this morning. Guys. Thank you. AMC Networks is the parent of the eponymous cable channel behind series including The Walking Dead, Breaking Bad and Mad Men, as well as owner of Sundance TV, IFC and streamers AMC Plus, Acorn TV and Shudder. The company embarked upon a major restructuring last year after chairman James Dolan described the mechanisms of content monetization as being in disarray and early this year appointed longtime board member Kristen Dolan as chief executive. The latter was among the speakers at Content London recently, where she sat down with Jordan Pinto to talk about the turbulence within the market, amplified by the US writers and actors' strikes, and how AMC is looking to come out the other side, building on an innovative licensing deal with Warner Brothers Discovery's Max and positioned for further industry consolidation. Kristen, it's been kind of a, a baptism of fire, as it were, for you, because it's only been since February that you were actually appointed um, to the position of CEO at AMC Networks. What were some of the things that you, uh, that you wanted to bring in? So it's been, it's been an interesting ride. I actually started at AMC Networks in 1989, right out of uni. And so I worked in distribution at that point, programming and content um, distribution in New York and New England for eight years on that side of the business. And then I went over on the telecom side to operations, TV, phone, internet, um, a fairly large, sixth largest cable operator in the US with about 17,000 employees at the time and worked my way up to chief operating officer there. So I'd sort of been on the programming side, then went on the distribution side, and then ultimately um, we sold the company and we were in the process of spinning out a data and analytics business that was based on audience measurement. So we were aggregating in the states, um, in our own cable system, we had seven million set-top boxes in every home and we were aggregating in a privacy compliant way about um, seven million set-top boxes worth of second-by-second -second data every night. And we were taking all of that information, again, privacy compliant way, and really learning detailed information around who was watching what, when, where, and why, and then the impact of the advertising that we were placing on the cable system. So that got super interesting. And because we sold the company, we weren't able to spin this out. So when I left Cablevision, when we sold, um, I started 605, which was a data and analytics company um, that was subsequently, thank God, uh, purchased by another company called iSpot, which is still in the business along with VideoAmp, Comscore, and Nielsen, and here uh, Barb, looking at the impact of, of advertising and content on 
on human behavior. So I had stayed on the board of AMC for 12 years, so I was still very well acquainted with the company. Um, and then the opportunity came up for the CEO role, so I took it. And basically what I've been doing since I was there is applying a lot of operating and technology and data and analytics efforts to what was a traditional video business um, and programming business. And so being at this conference for me is, is really kind of exciting because I'm not a content person, I'm not a creative person, so all the magic that many of you do is not what I'm good at. But um, what I am good at is sort of going in, fixing problems, um, tightening screws, pushing buttons, moving things around, and so we've spent a fair amount of the nine months that I've been there really um, optimizing the business, um, conscientious expense cutting, um, but more sophisticated approaches to marketing, to technology, to the use of data, um, and then really looking at emphasizing what content we have available and what's going to do best for the, the many brands and the platforms that we have uh, under our belt at this point. So it's, it's an interesting time. I feel like in my career, this is I, I've sort of been preparing um, for this moment, and I feel like having that background which again is not a programming background, actually is, is well suited to the business at this point in time, given the, you know, the tumultuous industry that we're all in right now. So. Yeah. Um, I think it, it was almost exactly a year ago today that was, um, so AMC Network's um, chairman, uh, James Dolan, put out a quote, or I think it was part of an internal memo. Mm -hmm. I'll, just read the, I'll just read the quote back to you because um, I think it was, it was kind of him sounding the alarm on the state of the, of the, of the, of the TV business. Um, you know, condensed here, he says, um, it was our belief that cord cutting losses would be offset by gains in streaming. This has not been the case. Um, we are primarily a content company and the mechanisms for the monetization of content are in disarray. Um, at the time, I think that kind of struck me as a very succinct um, mm -hmm. explanation of, of what was really happening in the business. Um, fast forwarding one year, um, you know, how, how, how do you think, um, you know, how far has the TV industry come in terms of figuring out those monetization models uh, around streaming? It's a, it's a great question, and, and Jim did say it first. I think Bob Iger said it as well um, later in the year in sort of managing what's going on in their business. Um, I'd say we're halfway through, I think, what, what we're all dealing with um, and really thinking about you know, monetization, right, making and curating the right content, distributing it appropriately, and investing in it appropriately. And so... Um, at AMC Networks, you know, we're, we're blessed. We have, um, in North America, we have five linear television services. We have seven um, streaming services. In Europe, we have many, many channels um, across Northern Europe, the Iberian Peninsula. We're in Latin America, and we're obviously here in partnership um, with Lisa and the CBS team on, on uh, Legend and on True Crime. So we have a lot of distribution traditionally also in streaming and now um, on the fast front we have nine different fast channels there are 19 different platforms so there's 90 iterations of our fast channels and so for us it's we you know we didn't get too far down the path of moving all of our new and most expensive content to our streaming service because we sort of we tried to manage things um, where we're activating all of our content across all of our different platforms for monetization. And since I've come in, um, you know, the, the company was 40 years old, and so the brands had been built individually. So AMC Network, you know, AMC, we, um, IFC, Sundance, and BBC America, they all had different management teams. And then we had our linear television teams and then we added streaming teams, and then we had other people working on fast. So you had this weird kind of mosaic 
of people that were all protecting and working on their piece of the business and they weren't really necessarily encouraged um, to integrate. And so now when we look at our con uh, the content that we have available, we really think about what's best for the company, including more and more frequently um, looking at the international content, the American you know, domestic content, and seeing even where we can perhaps take some of our great Spanish language content that we produce for a network like La Cucina and extending that over into the states to large Hispanic audiences. And so it's a lot of the work is around understanding what's in the cupboard and figuring out how and best where to utilize that content. Um, and then there's the whole advertising piece on top of it. So I think we're getting there. Um, there's a lot more work to be done. And then outside of our company, which is really a pure play programming company, you start to get into a lot of the horse trading that's been going on. Um, in, in utilizing different content by different people. So, uh, for example, we just recently acquired from Disney a show called Nautilus, which they had produced, I think, somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of $10, $10 million an episode, and they had shelved it. And so it was something that we were able to pick up um, in a very cost-efficient manner, and we'll be running that probably next year or early in the following year on one of our networks, or perhaps ideally as many networks as it will as it will play well on because we don't have as much overlap between our brands as you might think so we're actually not cannibalizing ourselves if we run a show maybe packaged slightly differently on WeTV versus AMC versus BBC America so it's it's really a lot of again using the data and the technology to say which audiences on which network or which brand on which platform We'll find this valuable, and then presenting that in, in a you know hopefully in a in a well packaged way. Mm -hmm. um, as everyone knows, um, you know the, the U.S. market and this bled over into into the U.K. and Canada and many of the other markets. You know there was a grueling uh, six month yes. um, writers yes. uh, strike and a, a SAG strike as well. Um, for, for AMC, whereabouts are you now in terms of kind of firing up the the content uh, or the production and the development pieces uh, of the puzzle? Um, we're, we're actually in great shape. We had finished a couple of shows um, and we're in the process of finishing a few that we got dispensation to finish. So um, we had, you know, we're able to go out with a number of new shows, probably most notably Daryl Dixon, which was the latest in the Walking Dead franchise. Very different type of, of uh, Walking Dead where it's really zeroing in on one particular character and that was shot in France. So we were able to finish that production um, and air that. And then we did a fair amount of, of uh, unscripted, which was helpful. But we had enough sort of ready to go. Um, so we were able to make it through. And we actually have, I think, some shows to talk about today. But um, new ones that I'm excited about, Orphan Black Echoes, which I believe the team is here somewhere, um, the Toronto team that helped with that show. And then we completed a show called Monster Spade with Clive Owen that will be premiering in January. And then um, another big one that I'm excited about is uh, a show called Parish, which is not necessarily an extension of the Better Call Saul you know, series or episode, but it features Giancarlo Esposito in another sort of action-packed um, extension of, of uh, the type of characters that he's played for us in the past um, in Breaking Gus, Bad. Gus right, Spring Gus. In, in Good. The one whose head exploded in the hospital at the <laughs> end. <laughs> he's a lovely man, actually. Um, so he's he's featured in another series that I think we can show, and that, that, um, that'll premiere probably uh, at the end of the first quarter, beginning of the second quarter. Um, okay, so in 2022, I think we know that in the US market there were about 599, mm -hmm. or maybe about, the, according to John Langraff, there were 599 um, scripted series in the US market. Um, 
2023 and 2024, due to the strikes, we know that number will go down. Yep. Um, and I think the, the market is certainly contracting slightly in terms of the number of shows. Um, when, when, you, when you kind of look at the market, how do you think that things will shake out? Like, I'm not asking you to put a specific mm -hmm. number on it necessarily, but I'd, I'd be interested to kind of get inside your brain um, to kind of, you know, get your take on, on what, the, what the correct size of the scripted market uh, should be. Right, it's, it's a great question. So we, we average now about a uh, billion dollars a year on content, and again, you know, really thinking about how to utilize it as effectively as possible on our own owned and operated networks around the world um, in streaming and fast, and then we license a fair amount, particularly in countries where we don't operate, so like The Walking Dead in Australia or things like that. So. A lot of it is about monetization. I think at our at our peak, we were up. This is all public, obviously. Um, we were up closer to a billion three. Um, and you know, when you start to look at the expense of operating the business, uh, the challenges with advertising being down, with distribution being down, with the to the earlier point, um, the streaming economics, you know, not really settling in yet. Um, I think for us, we'll land at around a billion dollars a year. Um, which I think is a healthy amount, right? We can do a significant number of series. Um, we have a reputation, obviously, for, for great scripted content. You know, the, the company was built on Mad Men and Breaking Bad and, you know, Walking Dead and other franchises. So for us, I think it's about finding the right, you know, maintaining the right franchises that support what we think are, you know, our revered brands and making sure that while we like to, at times, license when we can, spend enough to produce originals um, so that we maintain the brand equity that we have in, in smaller brands like IFC or Sundance, and then continuing to support our global brands um, and, and the mothership that is AMC. So for us, it'll be kind of where we were pre-pandemic, um, but I also think, again, some of the efficiencies um, that come around with new technology in more effective marketing. Um, we've been talking a lot about AI, and I know for creators it it's, can be scary to talk about AI, but for us, when we think about aspects of AI, it can be around efficiencies, not replacing people, but um, in things like translation services, you know, in dubbing, in subtitling, where if we can do some of those things more efficiently using technology, we can make more co uh, cost-effective content without actually um, jeopardizing or negatively impacting what the creators do. So if we can get the cost per episode down, even nominally um, for some of these shows, then I think, um, and also shooting, you know, shooting in other places. So, you know, in Ireland, in Canada, um, like we said, we, we shot um, Monster Spade in, in France. We did the second season of Interview with the Vampire in Prague. So as we just think about, again, this sort of nipping and tucking and finding ways to optimize what we deliver without compromising the quality, I think we can spend a reasonable amount. I think everybody's doing the same. You know, it was just, the, it, it's fascinating, you know, we all sat home and watched a massive amount of content, you know, for 18 months, and it, there's still a lot of viewership, but I wouldn't say it's at, at pandemic levels, and things like Tiger King were fun in the moment, but. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when I think back to Tiger King now, it's like a different lifetime. I almost kind of get a weird feeling. Um, great, great show at the time, though. I should it say it was. It was an amazing show. Um, you were mentioning uh, Nautilus earlier, mm -hmm. um, which you'd picked up from Disney Plus. Um, 
I think that kind of speaks to the um, you know the, the the market shift we've seen over the past probably nine months, where shows will bounce around between um, between streaming services and studios that had previously been very reticent to to share any content mm -hmm. or license any content outside uh, are now doing so. Um, a very interesting partnership that was announced um, it was about three months ago yep. now was um, AMC and AMC Plus. Some of your titles were launched within. Uh, not launched, I should say, but some um, some older titles were um, placed within Max in the US mm -hmm. is kind of a pop-up licensing yep. partnership, I suppose, <laughs> might be a, one way to describe it. Um, did, yeah, what, what, I think that partnership is the two months is now over, but um, you know, what were the learnings from the partnership? Was it, was it a success? Um, and would you like to do more of those? So yes and yes and yes. Um, we did the pop-up on Max. It was, you know, again, growing up in this industry, the relationships, particularly in the U.S., but also I, I think globally, um, they go way back. And so it's pretty easy for us each to pick up the phone um, and, and come up with ideas. So we got a call from Warner one day um, and said, you know, we should think about what can we do together. So we worked on the idea of just placing, you know, uh, some of the AMC content on Max, and Max is in, you know, eighty to one hundred million homes across the, you know, across the globe, um, and AMC, you know, is is a much smaller streamer. So we put a number of shows, and for the three months that the pop up was on Max, we had we were, you know, at at, at our height, seven of the top ten shows that were being streamed on Max were AMC shows, and interestingly, um, we had this thing we talk about a lot back at the office is what is a premiere, right? And a premiere now is not Thursday night at 8 o'clock. A premiere is the first time somebody watches something. And so interestingly, Discovery of Witches, which is an older show and, and sort of less expensive show, was one of the top viewed shows on, um, on Max for a number of weeks, in addition to our you know, large franchises like The Walking Dead or um, you know, some of the other shows that, that we've talked about. So. We got a lot of exposure for our content. We didn't put current current seasons, so we have a, a great show called Dark Winds, um, which is a '70s noir, uh, you know, indigenous Native American drama, which is an incredible show if you get the chance to watch it. So we put season one on Max in advance of premiering season two on on our linear and our streaming networks, and we could see the lift, right? So uh, a lot of the what we're focusing on now is is really. Again, privacy compliant way, sorry, you can tell I worked in ad tech for a while. Um, <laughs> privacy compliant way, looking at who was exposed to the AMC content on Max, and then seeing if they've now come on board either as viewers or as streaming purchasers post the experiment, right? So we're seeing what the implications would be of putting ourselves in, in a bigger window. And I mean that as like a shop window, not a, a licensing window exposing our content to more people to see if that then drives engagement on, on later series. So we expect to do a lot more of this. Um, we're actively talking to pretty much everybody. Um, and a smaller, a smaller company like AMC, because we're not vertically integrated, we're not owned by a broadcaster, we're not owned by, um, you know, by a distributor, we can kind of dance with anyone that's interested in dancing with us. Um, and I say that in the, in the most collegial way. Um, so I think you'll see more of that because it does help us sort of present on a larger stage. And then we feel like, again, everything comes back to the, the quality and the value of the content that we produce. So if we can put ourselves out there, 
drive engagement that then lends itself to, um, to more linear viewing, to more streaming viewing, and to uh, more applications of fast channels, then that's a win for us across the board. Okay, so some, some industry observers will have looked at the, well, and they have looked at the um, AMC and Max partnership mm -hmm. and said, you know, if, if, um, if AMC and Max wanted to, or if, if AMC and Warner Brothers Discovery wanted to kind of test drive a particular, you know, uh, some kind of, you know, a potential acquisition or a deal of some description, that mm -hmm. would be one way to do it. Um, I'm not saying that anything will come to fruition with um, Warner Brothers Discovery necessarily, but in 2024, is there the potential that AMC could um, either pursue a deal whereby they would be acquired by a larger company or a merger with a, a kind of a similar sized company? Um, so I don't have any big announcements to make today, but we are a public company in the US. It's family controlled, but it's a public company. And so we always operate in whatever is in the best interest of the shareholders. Um, so, I, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Like as a kind of coming full circle to the beginning of the conversation, like my role, I feel for the, you know, the years that I'm there is really to optimize the business in every way possible so that we're positioned either for a partnership, future investment, acquisition, whatever comes our way, we, you know, we're obligated as a public company to look at it. Um, but for me, it's like, can I optimize, you know, our distribution mechanisms, like our backend streaming? We acquired some services, so we have Acorn, All Black, AMC Plus. Um, we have a uh, anime service called High Dive. Um, and then within AMC Plus, we have IFC and Sundance. So we have, I'm missing something. Shudder, um, our, our, uh, our horror thing. I'm afraid of horror movies, which is probably why that one always slips my mind. But, um, you know, those were either created or acquired. And so when I look at our technical infrastructure, if I put this slide up there, you'd all run screaming from the room. Um, so we're trying to look at, we actually have an RFP out now to change to a federated backend for distribution of our fast, of our streaming, and our linear, right? So that's a way, probably a boring example for the content folks in the room, but that's a way where I can say, okay, if I can find the right solution for this technically, and I can predict over the next five years what we'll spend on distribution, then I can take that and say, okay, this, this is, I know what this will cost. And now if I get more sophisticated in my marketing, then I know what I can spend at a reasonable rate. Then if I get more sophisticated in my churn analytics and my predictive analytics around what people might watch um, or what people might be attracted to from one show to the other, I can just sort of streamline everything, right, in a way that makes it a very tight-run, well-operated ship. And then again, you know, I see our, our international folks are here um, really thinking about fully integrated those former, uh, the former cello products that we bought um, 10 years ago and saying, okay, as an international company that distributes across many platforms with many brands, what's the most effective and efficient way to do this? And um, so I think if we get to that place, which, you know, to your earlier question is probably we're, we're maybe halfway through. Like I literally might, during my day, I'm like, we flip over problem sets and we say, okay, what, what can we fix here? What can we change here? What can we do there? All under the umbrella of, um, of the original company and the DNA of AMC Networks, which is great creators making great franchises and great content, right? So we leave that alone. We let them you know, work in the lab and, and make their magic and we're sort of in the engine room kind of fixing all of those things. So you know, my goal to very long-windedly answer your question is to have a very well-run company that can then be sort of nimble to respond to anything that might come up in the marketplace. But I, I do believe consolidation in some way, shape, or form will probably happen and hopefully we'll have a role to play either on, on any side of that. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, I'm just going to go, if, does anyone have a question? Um, and if so, just raise your hand. Thank you so much. I'm Nikki Cole, writer, producer, director from Toronto and Los Angeles. My question has to do with diversity, underrepresented communities, behind the camera in particular. In such a large, I mean, with all these channels, is there such a thing as an overall mandate at AMC, or is that up to each in, in all of it? I'm just curious to know how it works. It's, it's really not a mandate. I think, you know, the world is changing, and a, a big piece of who we are culturally is, is sort of meeting people where they are and representing to people who, who, so that they see themselves. So a film like Monica, um, which is a transgender uh, lead, the first uh, transgender actress um, to, to lead a film, right? A, a show like Dark Winds, which really, you know, for me, I've gotten very interested in, in indigenous people and Native American culture based on both Dark Winds and a film that we had a documentary called Lakota Nation. Um, Having All Black, which is um, a scripted streaming service, very high quality, um, similar to mahogany type of content on, on Hallmark, where we're actively not only presenting diverse content, but utilizing behind the cameras um, and in the writer's room diverse talent. Um, and for us, I. It's not a mandate, but we see, A, we're, we're proud of it, and B, it works well with audiences. So it, it's something um, that I, I believe we definitely will continue to do. Um, and I'm also fascinated just looking at Netflix, Korean dramas, all the different things that are starting to appeal to a global audience. And I don't know if it's because the world's becoming smaller um, and bigger all at the same time, if people are more open. Um, to those types of content, but it's it's not a mandate. It's part of our DNA, and, and we'll continue to do it. In addition, again, to the many, many channels that we distribute and create, you know, from Jim Jam in Poland to, like I said, La Cucina um, in Spain. Um, it's just, it's and for me, it's fun. You know, it's interesting and fascinating to work with many different types of people. So it, it's a great question. Thank you so much for asking. Um, folks, we are basically out of time, but Kristen, I just want to give you, uh, you know, one last say on what should we expect from AMC Networks in 2024? Um, any kind of stated goals for you in what will be your second year as CEO or anything that you haven't already told us about? Good question. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's for me coming from, so Josh Sapan, who was the, you know, the, the madman, no pun intended, behind all the amazing content that we have. We still work closely with him. I've known him for 30 years. Um, I think for me, being able to take that legacy that he created and the team created of being producers of cultural content that, that has an impact, I think, again, doing that in a more modern way, and I've said that a bunch of times, like, that's really the goal. And then... Really, on the people side, getting everybody back to, A, getting them back to work, um, and B, having them be excited about it, and really reimagining ourselves as a more nimble, almost like startup mentality at the company is, is really the primary focus. So um, exciting times, scary times, but exciting times. So hopefully this time next year, we'll be back with, with more and better news. Fantastic. OK, everyone, please give a round of applause to Kristen. Thank you. Universal International Studios is the London-headquartered production arm of US-based Universal Studios Group that counts among its labels Carnival Films, Monkey, Matchbox Pictures, Working Title Television and Heyday Television. 
overseen by President Beatrice Springborn, who also steers Universal Content Productions, UIS is behind shows such as Everyone Else Burns and We Are Lady Parts, while upcoming titles include Day of the Jackal and Apples Never Fall, both of which have resumed following the conclusion of the US writers' and actors' strikes. Springborn was among the keynote interviews at C21's Content London recently, where she appeared on stage alongside newly appointed head of studio Roma Carner, formerly the executive chair of Hillary and Chelsea Clinton's Hidden Light Productions. The pair spoke with Jordan Pinto about how UIS is emerging from the strikes and their roadmap for 2024. Okay, so we have recently emerged from the dual strikes in the US, um, which obviously had a, had a massive impact on the global production um, picture and, and for commissioning as well. Um, Beatrice, can you kind of peel back the curtain a little bit on what's been happening over the past six months um, sure. as you know, a lot of things were, were halted? Yeah, I mean, we were all rooting for the industry to come back. And I think you know, so many of our productions were affected, even with the international marketplace. We, had a, a lot of productions that were affected. I think it gave us a chance on the studio side to look at what we were doing, have a philosophical approach of how we wanted to run our business as well, and go back to the essentials. You know, what we've seen post-strike is a lot of the shows that are selling, and we've taken out a few, few just in the past couple weeks post, post the SAG strike ending, is that people really are looking for amazing material and storytelling from the get. And if you have that, you're able to sell, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've been focused on quality over quantity and really seen that we've had multiple offers, which has been encouraging in a marketplace where I think everybody is really doom and gloom and we still see an upside and mm -hmm. a, a growing uh, marketplace mm -hmm. for us. Mm -hmm. um Roma, I know you're only three days three days into the job, so this wouldn't necessarily be for Universal International Studios. But what was the strike like? You know, for you, you were in your role at Hidden Light at that point. Yeah, I mean, I think I was sitting in LA, but it, with a very international focused role as well. And I, you know, the strike was hard all around. Um, but as B said, it gave us a chance to think about strategy more than you get to think about in your day-to-day -day life when you're actively producing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, with Hidden Light, you know, we were in the development stage of most of our projects, but it was pencils down with writers, and um, th that, was, that was tough, you know, and for those of you who have writers, writer friends, you know, it was really fun for about a month, and then after that, they're, they're much less fun when they're not working. Mm -hmm. uh, we all like to be working and doing what we do best, so yeah. very happy to be out of it and to be hitting the work again. Also, yeah. I also have to say there's a new appreciation, and I know that yeah. sounds basic, but I think having, you know, had that time away from one another, we're all happy to be back, and it is, you know, the heart does grow fonder, yeah. <laughs> and we realize how much we need one another and how key creatives are to our business and drive it, so I do think there was a bit of, you know, right when the strikes ended, we would get texts like, can we talk now? And, you know, it was a, a fun back and forth with that that feels like family coming back together, which is a good feeling. Yeah, um, Beatrice, you mentioned that some, some productions did get halted um, as a result of the strike, obviously. Um, I know that, I think it's been a few years since you've been with Universal International yeah. Studios now, but uh, you know, some of the, the first slate that you have put together yeah. was probably, probably halted as, as a result, which must have been frustrating, but what, what are some of the shows that um, you've been able to kind of get back up and running um, since? So we have Apples Never Fall continuing to shoot in Australia. It paused during, during the strike. Day of the Jackal, which is shooting right now all over Europe with Eddie Redmayne and Lashana Lynch. Um, that's a universal title that we're doing with Sky and Peacock. We're, we're about to start a production with Matchbox um, 
I don't know if we've announced it yet, so I'm gonna, I, I, <laughs> yeah. we won't talk Please about that. <laughs> um, Lots and then, happening. And then, you know, we have a lot of shows that we had really ready to go right before the strike that have gone out. So a project called The Island mm -hmm. that I pitch as Deliverance meets Jurassic Park, which has already gotten some interest and some offers coming in. And, you know, that's something that for Matchbox, our Australian um, production company, it's a big, you know, bold idea about an American who goes to the outback in Australia and is, you know, there's an accident, um, people on an island find out about it and all hell breaks loose. Um, and it's just fun and really uh, propellant, um, a propellant story uh, that we've had a lot of interest around. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, um, moving out of. I'm sorry to keep bringing up the strike, but kind of moving no. out. Moving out. It kind of feels like, especially yeah. in Hollywood, there's like a before and after times with with yeah. the strike. Um, as we move into this kind of post-strike environment, um, are there any areas that you want to double double down on um, within the strategy? And maybe it would also be a good time for you to tell us about what the what the broader yeah. um, vision is. I mean, the the great thing about being at Universal is we, you know, we obviously have. Um, Peacock and Sky within our um, family, but we sell to everybody. So our strategy is trying to put together a slate with an amazing, talented group of executives who are driven by, I say, the things that keep them up at night and the things that get them up in the morning. I don't, having come from a buyer before, I know that the things that people respond to and want to work on are thematics, right? It's not, we're not prescriptive and we need like three soaps. We need five genres. We need, it's really who's the talent that's going to drive it? How are we going to put that together? And does it make me feel something? And am I surprised by it? Right. And I do think what's phenomenal about that is when you're driven from those places, the projects end up being incredible, right? And that's why we've had luck selling widely mm -hmm. is because we, we develop from that place and we are, um, I think, uh, talking about universal things that people are responding to versus trying to fit a mandate that yeah. as a buyer, that's, even though you say you want that, it's usually not what gets sold or what is successful. Yeah. Um, Roma, uh, you, you arriving at Universal Ancestral Studios is, is you know, quite a big moment in, you know, in that company, I, I think. Um, it's also worth noting that you're actually in the process of moving from LA to London in order to take Literally this job Literally in well. the process. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, wh where are you, uh, have you, have you fully moved yet, or are you? I'll, I'll be here starting uh, January full time, so I'm here and back and forth for this month and then the holidays. And uh, I'm here and, and ready. You know, Beatrice and I have been talking for a very long time, and it, it's nice that it's landed, but really driven not only to be back in London, which I love, and in the center of the world. No offense to LA. Um, out of here. It's, uh, no, but really being driven by the things that UIS has been achieving, but also really has ambition to achieve going forward, which is my sweet spot in work and in life, which is global voices, global storytelling. Sometimes those are big voices that we've all heard from and want to hear more from. And sometimes those are new voices that haven't had the airspace to, to be heard. Um, and really to have that big company behind you, but to be able to do it from the UK, thinking much more locally on a global level. Um, it, it's the best of both worlds. So I sort of feel like I'm winning right now on all fronts that I get to live, you know, spend time in LA and I've lived there and the weather's amazing and I'm really missing it this week. <laughs> um, but then also be in London, which is still a place that, 
is connected to the rest of the world in a very different way. You know, the way people talk, what's on the news, you know, you're thinking about Africa, you're thinking about Asia, you're thinking about um, all of these other places in the world and all the voices coming from those places. And I'm, I'm really excited to be back. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And work with Beatrice again. You know, Beatrice and I did uh, a show together when she was at Hulu, um, a little show called Fargo that I think, uh, Fargo Handmaid's Tale. Oh my <laughs> I was God. Like, ah, I wish Hulu, I did that was FX. <laughs> same time, same year. Um, Handmaid's Tale, we had so much fun together. So I mm -hmm. suspect we're going to have some fun together yeah. now. Did you guys work together closely um, when you were doing Handmaid's. that? Yeah. 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 On Handmaid's. Yeah. At the very, very early stages, too, getting it off the ground. So that's always a hard stage for a show. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. fun. Yeah. Um, I think it's fair to say that the, the peak TV era is, is is now over, and it was it was probably it was over before the strikes happened anyway. Um, are you going to be retooling your your development strategy? Do you think we're not retooling? I mean, we're focused on quality over quantity, which I think is you know we are going to see a shrinking market, and so our goal is to come out with undeniable projects, which I know sounds super obvious, but you only do that with the quality. And again, things that are selling are the projects that are. Have you know there is the IP piece, but it can't just be IP. It has to be IP and or or something completely original that's told from a voice. And I know that sounds basic, but I think going back to the essentials and making sure that the scripts are great quality, that someone believes in the voice, that there's also someone in, in the project who can actually produce television. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's been a lot of um, ex expansion, and sometimes that brings new talent, which we love and want to work with, but it's also great to have people with TV experience to come support that. Mm. We're also looking at development in how do we construct things from the get-go that are budget conscious, because a lot of people want shows that are you know, up for a budget, and a lot of these budgets ballooned, and there is a way to continue to be creative by having a smaller budget. Sometimes I think people do better work when they're constrained by a budget to be creative. So we're looking at getting involved in that, those conversations earlier um, as we develop. I think that that's how we're seeing the marketplace change. I'm an eternal optimist, and I do think, again, the, the quality always overcomes any other uh, obstacles. And so we're still in a wait-and-see mode, but if the past couple of weeks have been any indication, we're in a great place. Mm -hmm. Has it been pretty crazy ever, ever since? It's been ever, crazy. Like, yeah. yeah, it's been crazy. I think it's been crazy, but I think, you know, we've taken out on the on UCP, we took out Cape Fear, which has, like, multiple offers, and that is a big package, but it's also an incredible showrunner in Nick Antasca. Mm -hmm. on, the U, um, on the UIS side, we've taken out two packages that have already sold and they were one was a book with great talent attached with an actress and a, and a producer who knows how to make tv and the other was an incredible idea based on a book it wasn't you know it didn't have an actor attached but it was something where you knew this is you know this is a key idea it has a center it's set somewhere interesting and it had a voice and we've had multiple offers so mm -hmm. Yeah. If, any, if the last two weeks are any symptom of where we're going to go, I'm, I'm feeling good about it. Yeah. So. Well, that seems to be kind of counter to, you know, a lot of what people are saying is, yeah. you know, the buyers are going to be very standoffish. They're yeah. going to be waiting until at yeah. least Q1 of next year to, yeah. to, to see where things land. But it, it sounds like I things I think we got in right under the wire before the end of the year where people are just ready to go on holiday as well. So it was um, both the quality and the packages and seeding that with people and getting it, getting buyers excited about it. I mean, our jobs are as sellers, so it's, you know, prefacing it for people, telling people it's coming, getting people excited about it. And so I think they were prepped and ready right when the strike ended. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, um, one of the things, and this was in the in the very first session yesterday, um, was talking about how commissioning or what commissioners are looking for might change yeah. um, in 2024, as, as, as you said there, you know, as budgets start to shrink and yeah. people become a bit more cost conscious. One of the things that was, um, I think it was Ampere analysis said it, was that things like maybe sci-fi or big budget sci-fi um, and fantasy might be kind of deprioritized de in favor of more either crime or romance or more procedural kind of fare. Yeah. Um, is, is that how you see things panning out? And are you re-gearing your, your development slates to, to, to that or not really? Not really. I mean, for, I'd say for genre, it's a really grounded genre. So you think about something like, I mean, my touchstone in some movie for genre is Arrival. That's something that is able to do an alien story, but it's a human story. It's not huge special effects. It's not, you know, gigantic um, VFX costs. But it's a, it's a great way into genre through character. And we have a lot of projects that we're developing that tonally are, are like that, that I think can be done for a price. Mm -hmm. And these days for a price is anything below, you know, $8 million, believe it or not. You know, mm -hmm. that used to be the most you'd pay for a drama. Now that that is like anything below that is considered budget, right. <laughs> which is interesting. Um, and then, you know, I just learned a new word, which I... I've, I feel shameful saying, but it is a prestigial, which someone said to me the other day, well, and I literally was like, okay, I've never heard this before, but I, but that's clear. Um, a lot of the streamers are looking for ongoing series, you know, things that feel easy to watch. You know, our show Suits is incredibly huge on Netflix, and it is amazing looking people in great clothes, but at the core of it, you can't have a show that's successful with just that. It has to have great storytelling and great character work. So how do you do something that can be ongoing, have a gloss to it and be on, you know, continue continuing series, which everyone wants, but at the heart of it, it has to have a great character work. So yeah. the procedural yeah. is that's, what we're, <laughs> which I will never use again after right now. <laughs> I was going to say, that should be the word. Quoted, but, yes. <laughs> the, yeah. the other thing, though, is I think we talk about the changes and the shifts and the focus on quality and storytelling and the storytellers, the people with the strong voices, it has to drive everything because good television development takes time. So by the time you mm -hmm. go from hearing a great idea to actually being able to deliver a great idea, it can literally be years, as we know. Um, and things change so fast in this marketplace, you don't really know where it's going. So the, the one sort of guiding light you can always have is that strong voice and that strong creative and, and the great package of people that rally around it. Another thing we've been hearing about the changing market is that co-productions will be, and I know everyone always says co-productions are back, and they say it every year, but it does feel... They never left. <laughs> yeah, they definitely never left. Um, but do you think there'll be more opportunities for, for your business to, I suppose, you know, piece together financing through, through different means? I... Yes, and I think people are much more open to partnership because of those budget constraints, right? Before it was, you want to own everything, you want... Um, more of, of the, the piece of the pie. And yes, that's how you run a business in many ways, but I think a lot of partners and a lot of streamers and buyers as well are willing to partner in ways they weren't before because of the budget constraints mm -hmm. and to be able to do bigger shows with a, a pot of different money coming from different places. Yeah. There's, there's much more of that. Mm -hmm. um, Roma, just just one for you, maybe because I feel like I haven't maybe asked you enough about the the, the vision for. Okay, for, I'm for enjoying you. listening to Beatrice, <laughs> so it's perfect. 
Um, just thinking about the vision for UIS, um, when, you know, is there anything you'd like to put on producers and creators radar about, um, you know, about what you will, what you'll want and what you want to be doing um, once you, maybe once you've arrived in London in January? And, and kind of definitely wait till January to call me. There's a whole team you can call <laughs> before then. But, um, you know, I think the vision is what drew me in. So the vision is actually really clear. And it has to do with everything that Beatrice has been saying, which is quality storytelling, universal stories, but that are grounded in a local voice, that are grounded in something that feels unique and special um, and, and rare or unusual. So it's, it's looking for those stories that can travel because the themes are big, but they don't have to feel like they were made in, you know, insert country X here, that they were made in the place they were made or the voice came from the place where it came from and, and to be unapologetic about that. Um, and then the, on the business front, which I think is sometimes just as important, uh, is, is that we are flexible. We're, we're a big company, but UIS is a small entrepreneurial uh, gem, I will say, within the bigger company. We're able to be flexible. We're able to be nimble. We're able to take the best of both worlds and do, you know, do the deal that might not be the standard deal, to, to create a relationship, to say this might be a global show, this might be something that gets put together by co-production or partnership or pre-sales, and, you know, I, th I think there's no one way we're looking to always do it. Instead, we look at the show and say, what do we think this show can do? Um, and what are we willing to put behind that? And if we need partners, then let's go out and find the partners. And, you know, that's something coming from outside the U.S. market and starting my career in Canada. I mean, that's the bread and butter, right, is not having to have everything yourself, but instead finding people who are just as passionate about the story as you are, who are willing to um, look at how you split up that distribution in pot to make it work. Yeah. Um, Beatrice, is, is the unscripted side of the business also something within US, UIS that you, you oversee as well? I don't oversee it, Okay. but it is within our group, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. is, is there anything you're able to say about the, the unscripted part of the business? I'm gonna or? point to Toby Gorman, yeah. I see in the audience okay. right there. Please bring us those great ideas too in UIS because we're here and we're on the ground. Um, we also have a great formats team um, within UIS, so uh, unscripted, we've all seen the shift in terms of um, what the audience is watching, what's getting produced over the last year plus, and, and unscripted is taking on a very different meaning than it did five years ago. And that opportunity, voices that cross over, ideas that can cross over, um, we're looking at it within UIS in a very holistic way, even though there are different teams and leaders within this company, that's the benefit of, of being this smaller, more entrepreneurial team within the bigger entity is that we've got backup from people who really are great at this, that when the good ideas come in the door, we can ignite um, that into production, so. Yeah, I think, you know, speaking for Ed and Toby, as I look at you guys in the audience, I think the thing that is still driving the market are formats, right, and we, They've been able to secure an amazing format in Destination X, which right. we're doing with BBC and NBC. And that was something that you know everybody went after. And because of our amazing team and, and what we were able to bring to it and the cross-collaboration, dare I use the word synergy across the, the group, um, we, we are able to get those, mm. you know? So that's been great. Yeah. Um, looking to the next 12 months, um, 
obviously everything's been paused for a while, but it feels like the, the content, um, with the content machine up and running now, as you look to the, the kind of roadmap for the next 12 months, um, what are some of, the, some of the goals or some of the key objectives or some of the hopes? We have a great creative acquisitions group with Jordan Moblo, um, who's been with us for about a year right now. And so we started to get a couple of really big books that we will announce over the next couple months. And my goal is to make sure that we're getting the best writers across those, that we're taking those out, that we're partnering with people from the ground up. I don't think that just big packages sell anymore. I think investing buyers from the ground up and bringing them, here's just a great idea, or here's a script that doesn't have any attachments from an amazing new writer but has a voice, to come in earlier and build those will help invest buyers, I think, more than waiting to take out just a huge package. Yeah. I really don't think that that's the only way to go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we're looking to do that as, I say, you know, get points on the board from the get-go versus not everything has to be the biggest, you know, craziest um, bidding war. It's nice when it happens, and it happens, but uh, I like having investment from the get-go from a partner. Yeah. And then um, part of what we'll do in UIS is really find those voices around the world and, and hopefully um, continue to grow that the platform and the opportunity from that perspective is to say, as as USG is looking for um, the strongest voices and the right the strongest writers across things that we're looking in the not always obvious places for those voices and writers. So I'm hoping the international community will partner with us to bring some of those voices forward. Yeah, um, I'm just just to say if you have any questions, we've got about five minutes left, so uh, please send those through, and I will uh, I'll, I'll get to them. Um, when we're just looking ahead to kind of broader, like taking your Universal International Studio caps off now, um, thinking about the, uh, how, how, how the market might look in 2024. Um, do you have any predictions or any sense, and I, I know no one seems to have a true sense because you know, it's, everything changes every two weeks, but do you have a, you know, can you give us a sense of what you, what you see 2024, um, how you see things shaking out? Well, <laughs> I, I think it's going to be another year of change. Um, I think an evolution, not just change. And, and the world is evolving and changing and one step forward in some corners, one step back. And I, I think it's just really solidifying our need to be as nimble as we can be and on our feet and to be thinking um, as creatively as we can, not just about the creative, but about the business models, the partnerships and how we get things done and where and how we invest. And I, I think this idea of there's a way we do things is just done, and, and if it's lingering in any corners, my feeling is that in 2024, um, none of us are gonna feel that way anymore, even for a moment. There's no way things are done, there's just the way we're gonna do them to get them done, mm -hmm. and that's gonna evolve, and we need to challenge ourselves to think um, as creatively and quickly as we can about that. Yeah. There'll be more openness to partnerships like we talked about because of the budget constraints. There's gonna be a constant focus on budgets, and I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that that creates more creative opportunities because mm. you really are forced to work in, work, work inside of that. I do think, too, it's, it's really going back to the essentials of, is it a great script? Is the quality there? Do we have the right writer? How we put it together in a way where everybody knows the show we're making? The one negative thing, or there was a couple negative things about the the crazy, you know, salad days of streaming where there were a lot of people making shows who had not done television before. There were a lot of people making shows that had huge budgets. And while that was great, and we all lived through that and, and benefited from it, to be able to be 
more creatively constrained, sometimes I could say financially constrained, sometimes really bears a larger uh, creative payoff. Mm -hmm. I think also in 2024, we'll see a lot more experimentation because of the budget constraints. Mm -hmm. um, storytelling is still going to exist and it's still going to evolve. It's always done both of those things, but the technologies we all read about and think about and wonder how this will affect us, that, you know, the questions during the strikes around AI and how that affects how we produce things, virtual studios, um, the use of uh, digital painting that's, you know, become so real. I think this next year we'll see some shows really playing in that space and really leaning in to say, what can I do with this? And then the year after we should see it really starting to work in some corners and hopefully this provides us tools to help bring costs down for the types of shows that in a budget constrained world you may never have looked at five years ago because there's no way to build that without spending XYZ dollars and now we can turn to technology and say well actually it doesn't look like a game anymore it actually looks like something um, much more visceral and maybe we can use that for storytelling. So I'm, I'm hoping we see that played with this year. Mm -hmm. And 2024 will be the year of the prestige role now as we've yes. heard. So. Yes, we the synergies with <laughs> yes. the prestige role. <laughs> Synergy and prestige role. A question came through here. So with the renewed interest in suits, um, will we see any more from, uh, from some of the franchises or the, uh, within the universal umbrella? Um, we are doing, yes, we are doing Suits LA. For, so we're working on that right now with NBC. So that's going to be same time frame. Aaron Korsh, who is the showrunner, is writing that for us as well. And it is so fun and poppy. And I think we'll, we'll have the same energy and good looking people that the original did. <laughs> um, okay, there's a few coming through now. Let me just leave it till late. Um, Will you look to creative tech platforms to find stories, and if so, which platforms? Creative tech platforms? Yes, creative tech platforms. So um, is an example like TikTok, or is that more? <laughs> we, we, we don't know. The question does not specify. Um, but maybe, would you consider stories pitched from creators using AI? I mean, I think ultimately the answer is you look for stories everywhere you can find stories. So there's no reason not to be looking to technology and the new platforms that are out there for story ideas. Um, which platforms is a harder thing because, you know, it's you've seen the evolution or the attempt of longer form storytelling for Snap from Snapchat or uh, Facebook and these platforms are really good at what they do. The translation is not always one-to-one -one in terms of telling um, more television style, whatever that means in the future, storytelling. So I think part of our jobs as developers of content is to have our eyes and ears everywhere where the audience is or where the potential audience is and, and to try to identify, I think, ultimately creative voices. You know, the, the voice that stands out, the person that stands out, that's able to use the technology um, and the platform, whatever that might be, and then ask the question, you know, could that voice translate? Could that voice benefit from a, a different style of platform that television offers? Um, I know I'm not being helpful for whoever asked to say, which platform are you looking at? But it's really, it, we depend on someone saying to us, hey, have you seen, did you hear this comedian? Did you see this woman doing this thing? And, and then they send around a link and it doesn't matter if you've ever seen the platform before. If it's great, you watch it. So I, I think that will continue as, as a sourcing opportunity, but 
I know from where I sit and, and we'll see going forward is relying on great producers bringing those to us and saying, you may not know of this platform, insert name here, but a million people have watched this young person do something amazing. Have you seen it? I think I can turn that into a story and this is how. So it's, it's always valuable to... I see, to be connected. I see technology as complementary but never replacing, right? And so I just don't think we can run this business without having that curiosity, that feeling, that human emotion. It will always, to me, be a, a complement, not a replacement. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. We are out of time, folks, but I just want to get everyone to give a warm round of applause to Beatrice and Roma on our first week. Thank, Thank you so you. much, guys. Thank you. Beatrice Springborn and Roma Karner speaking with Jordan Pinto. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.